Good morning, good morning. My name is Bruce Rokas. I serve as one of the Upward Basketball Commissioners. We have Upward families with us today. I want to welcome you. Whether you're on the cheer side of things or the basketball side of things, we're glad to have you and really any guest that are in our audience today. I'd like everyone to take out your bulletin real quick and turn to the right-hand side. We'll go about halfway down. You see that little section called Baptism Stories? I want you to be looking online because we're going to get pictures and the full details coming up soon. But uh, last week, uh, Hector Villarreal was baptized into Christ, if you were with us last Sunday. And he serves as one of our upward coaches. And then um, Thursday night, Monique Alvarado was baptized into Christ. You don't know about that one until today. But uh, she was connected with Upward Sports a few years ago when her son Joshua joined us. And uh, she's been studying uh, the Bible with uh, Joanne Duran recently. And then, um, you may not be aware of this one either, Maria Consuelo Nunez, uh, Jedver and I had the privilege of baptizing her into Christ on Wednesday night. She is Letty's uh, mother, Jedver's mother-in-law. Uh, three years ago, uh, I got a call from the family saying, uh, that Maria was had a massive stroke, didn't think she was going to live. Can you go to the hospital and pray with her? And so I did, and the whole family was there. Everyone's in tears. Uh, Maria uh, had a tracheotomy, pretty much all life support, but uh, she could hear. She could understand. She couldn't talk, and I'd never met her before. And so I grabbed, had, had my finger in her hand, And I told her who I was, and I said, Maria, we're going to pray that you live. And we're going to pray that you become a believer in Jesus Christ. I said, do you understand me? And she squeezed my finger. And that's about all she could do back then. Well, in that three-year time, we have met many times uh, in the convalescent home. She's now living with uh, one of the family members, one of the daughters. And we finally arranged a time when we could all be together. There had to be 25 of us in the, uh, in the living room of Jedver's house and gathered everyone together. We had a wonderful meal together, and then we were able to baptize her into Christ. So what did you know about that? Be looking. If you don't go on the app, you don't see the Crosspoint News, you need to do that. It's got some really good stories in there about, about how God is working, how God is moving and how God is gracious. And I want to hold this book up to you today. It's a book that I got a number of years ago, probably sometime in the 90s, by Charles Swindoll called The Grace Awakening. Anybody familiar with this book? It, uh, let me see a few hands. I was rereading it again. I, I love the story in chapter 5 of Mephibosheth. And some of you have heard that before, but we're going to stir up your minds by way of remembrance. But if you don't know the story of Mephibosheth and the graciousness that was poured out to him by King David, you need to hear his story because David in this instance is a type of Christ. And that same grace that he received was poured out to us by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so I'm going to be relying heavily on this book here today by Chuck. We're calling this Undeserving, Unqualified, Yet Unconditionally Loved. That's all of us. We're undeserving. None of us are qualified for anything in God's eyes, and yet we are unconditionally loved by Him. It really is an amazing grace. Now, believing in grace is one thing. Living 
it's another. And I, and I, want, I want us to live it. I want, it to get, I want us to feel it. I want us to experience it so we can live it and give it back in the lives of others that need the same grace of God. See, the world doesn't understand what we mean by the word grace. Uh, the secular society, if you talk to them about grace, to many of them they would say, Oh, grace. Yeah, I know what grace is. That's that thing that you do uh, before you eat a meal. Is somebody going to say grace? Some think ballerinas are graceful. Ballerinas are said to have grace. And when nobility is present, present the queen is said to add grace to the gathering. But those meanings of grace are light years removed from what the Bible has to say on the subject. Did you know that there is no fellowship with God without His grace? Paul, I think, understood grace as well, if not better, than anybody that has ever lived. He experienced it. And... um, As Paul shares the good news, I notice that he often shares the bad news first. Because I don't think it's possible to really appreciate how good the good news is until we know how bad the bad news is. And to the Romans, he will write, there is none righteous, no, not even one. He will go on to say in that same chapter, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, don't worry. Paul says the bad news gets worse. The wages, the payday for sin is death, the eternal kind. Death in the Bible is eternal separation from God. But then he's quick to follow all of that up with the good news. So the bad news is we're all sinners. We deserve death. We deserve to be eternally separated from God. But look at this verse up here on the screen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace, G-R-A-C-E, what's grace? Unmerited favor. You have been saved through faith. And it is not from yourself, it is the gift of God. What, What do you do with a gift? You receive it. He's saying grace is something you don't earn. It's something you can't buy. You don't even qualify for it. It's like a gift. If I have a gift and I want to give it to you, in order to receive the gift, you've got to receive the gift. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying there came a day in my my life, a day in your life, that I received that gift of God. And I don't think anybody appreciated grace more than the Apostle Paul. And let's, let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9 as he expounds upon this subject. He will say, For I am the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Why, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. What? So we go, the apostle Paul? When did he do that? Well, when his name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus was zealous for God. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews. He was a scholar of scholars. He was a legalist of legalists. He believed in the law of Moses. He had memorized it, perhaps, and was the rising star in Judaism. 
And his claim to fame was he could get letters from officials in the Jewish church to go kill and persecute Christians. And he's doing that in Acts chapter 9 and Acts 22. He tells the story twice. And on the road to Damascus to murder and kill and torture and arrest Christians, he saw the light. He saw Jesus. Jesus knocks him off his high horse. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? He knows there's someone bigger than him. He thought he was the biggest shot in town. And he says, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Man, when he heard those words, I mean, that was a defining moment for the Apostle Paul. And he received his grace. He is blind for three days. You know, he was talking to God that full time. Get into town. He can't even get anyone to baptize him. See, he said, I never heard the gospel from anybody other than Jesus. Read the book of Galatians. He'll say this. Man didn't teach me about Jesus. Jesus taught me about Jesus. What I learned, I didn't learn from man. See, his apostleship was in question. And he says, man, you look at my story. I didn't get it from anybody but Jesus. Now, do I deserve it? No, I don't deserve it. It's grace. I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Yeah, I was a Christian killer. I was a murderer. Man, I don't know if you ever met Mrs. Stephen. But I know he killed the first deacon in the church, one of the first deacons. His name was Stephen. He was there holding the coats of the men that stoned him to death, urging them on. And sometime later, Paul makes his way back to the same church. He's in this area. I don't know if they ever met. Can you imagine him showing up to the church service? Uh, the Apostle Paul's going to preach today. Paul, Paul, isn't he? Wasn't that the guy named Saul? Saul that murdered Mrs. Stevens' husband? Yeah. I don't know if they met in church. Could you imagine that scene, though, if they did? Here, the Apostle Paul meets Mrs. Stephen, a widow. Yeah, here are the kids. No longer have a father. And Paul says, look, I get it, I get it. I don't deserve to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. Do you see where he's coming from? You're right. I don't deserve to be an apostle, and yet I am an apostle. How is that even possible? He's saying, by the grace of God. Watch this, next part. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect... Man, I made such a transformation in my life because of this amazing grace. I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Next part. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach. Grace, 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 grace. That's what I preach. And what do I believe? Grace, 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 grace. Paul was a grace preacher. And I want to be like Paul. How about you? I don't just want to believe it. I want to experience it so that I can give it to others. That's what this book's about. If you never got this book, you can borrow mine. You've got to check it out, though. I want your name, address, phone number, email, a deposit. You ever loan out a book and never get it back? <laughs> That's happened to me so many times. Grace to you if you don't return it. I just pray you get good use out of it.
Paul says three things in this passage about grace. He says, number one, God does what he does by his grace. Someone says, I never would have picked Paul to be an apostle. Paul says, me too. I wouldn't have picked me. I wouldn't have picked Bruce to be a preacher. Me too. I wouldn't have picked me. He just says, who are you to tell God who he can pick and who he can't pick? Number two, he says, I am what I am by grace. My only claim to fame is undeserved grace of God. What's your qualifications, Paul? Undeserved grace of God. And thirdly, he says, now God's asked me to let you be what you are by God's grace. That's easier said than done because we always want to change people, don't we? Jesus' game plan was to free people. Wouldn't it be great if we cooperated with that plan? Uh, I love the little Charles Schultz, and this is something that Chuck brings out. He must have loved Peanuts characters because he's always talking about Lucy and Charlie, and the first frame is Lucy says something like, if I were in charge, Charlie Brown, I would change the whole world. And, you know, poor Charlie Brown, he's stuck, has to listen to her, and he's like, oh, well, that wouldn't be easy, Lucy. Uh, where would you begin? And Lucy says, I would start with you, Charlie Brown. <laughs> that's what she's doing there. In that, I, I just found that picture, but that's, I'm, that's how I'm using that one today. You need changing, and I'm going to start with you. And that's the way many of us are. And Paul comes along and says, wrong, that's the wrong attitude. Now, it's true, we all need changing, amen? But that's not my job. That's not your job. God does the changing by His grace. I think grace is a better teacher than me or you, right? Or Lucy. Let's let grace be the teacher. Let God do it through His grace. Now, this morning, we're going to look at an Old Testament example of God's grace. And so, in the next few minutes, I want us to kind of leave our modern era of... um, satellites and internet and technology and we're going to go back some 3,000 years in time to the dynasties of the kings when the kings called the shots whatever the king says goes and it's a brutal era in time during this time when one king went down the tradition was the new king in power would take out the entire family. Men, women, children. They don't want anybody from that family rising up to the kingdom again. That's just kind of the way it was done. Wiped out the whole family. King Saul, he was the first king of Israel, right? Big tall man. Had a son named Jonathan. And both Saul and Jonathan were killed in the same battle. They, they're both dead. David now takes the throne. He's already been anointed as king by Samuel. And word gets back to the castle that Saul is dead. Jonathan is dead. And they all kind of think that the new king, David, is going to be like all the kings before him. And he's going to take out the entire family. And so what are they, what kind of mode are they in? You ever been in panic mode? Got to hurry, got to hurry, got to get, got to get, 
pack up some stuff. Get, let's, get, let's get some few belongings and let's get out of here. They're grabbing only the necessities. It's panic. It's fear. It's pandemonium. 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son. There's a little background. Who was lame in both feet. This is the backstory. Well, how did that happen? He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. Jezreel was the battlefield on which Saul and Jonathan died. So we got a five-year-old boy. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows, Daddy's dead. Grandpa's dead. And people are crying. They're fleeing. There's panic. It's chaos. Do you kind of see that picture in your mind? And there's a nursemaid, a nurse, the next verse, his nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried, you just see a little five-year-old being drugged almost. As she hurried, that's the nursemaid, he fell. A terrible accident that takes place. We don't know all the details here, just something tragic happened here and he became a cripple from then on and his name was Mephibosheth it's a horrible scene it's a horrible accident Saul's grandson is running for his life his feet are crushed and someone doesn't say hey get him to the ER get him over there he needs emergency attention nothing like that why Saul will be looking for people there And so he doesn't get any medical attention. Maybe they could have saved his feet from being permanently disabled. Or maybe a portion of the mobility to be stronger. And nothing more is said of Mephibosheth. That's all we get for like 15, 20 years. And so we leave him as a 5-year-old in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And we pick up with a young adult with a handicap. In 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now, in the meantime, David continues to grow in popularity. Uh, David has taken the throne by storm. Everybody loves him. This is, of course, before the Bathsheba incident. There's not even a hint of scandal in David's career at this point. Not a mark on his character And now he expands the borders of his kingdom from some 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. His military has never been stronger. His enemies respect him. He's never known defeat on the battlefield. The economy is going great. Prosperity is everywhere. There's a chicken in every pot. There are grapes on every vine. And everything's going so well. And I can just imagine him up on the the rooftop of his castle, overlooking his kingdom, just saying, yes, this is one fantastic place. And he's not patting himself on the back. You know what he's doing? He's thanking God. He's thanking God for all of this. He knew it was God's grace on his life. And in a moment of nostalgia, he's looking back. 
to a promise made to his friend Jonathan. Did I mention that David and Jonathan were best friends? The Bible speaks of a friend that's closer than a brother. That's Jonathan to David. That's David to Jonathan. They loved each other. And Jonathan knew his dad was out to get him. His his dad was out to kill him. And Jonathan was trying to spare his life. And and years earlier, they they had met together and, and, and they knew they would probably never see each other again. And Jonathan says to David, please make me a promise. When you become the king and you take over the kingdom, would you be kind to my family? Would you take care of my family? And David says, you got it. I'll take care of them. And I'm sure he did. But he's, he, he's busy with kingdom business. He's busy conquering. He's busy. But now things have settled down enough that he's saying, you know what? I made a promise to Jonathan. I need to reach out. I need to take care of. If there's anybody else I, have, I haven't taken care of, and I need to find out. And so in chapter 9 and verse 2, a question is asked. David asks, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness? It's the Hebrew word chesed. It means, is there anyone I can show mercy to? Kindness to? Grace to? For Jonathan's sake. For the sake of Jonathan. I made a promise. I'm going to keep my promise. A promise made. A promise is about to be kept. It's a good question asked by a grateful man. And I love the question for what it doesn't ask. He doesn't say, is there anyone deserving that I can show grace to? He doesn't say, is there anyone qualified I can show grace to? Is there anyone in good shape that I can add to my army from Jonathan's family that I can show grace to? He just says, is there anyone No qualifications. Anyone. Verse 2. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. So, King Saul had a servant. Years have gone by. They said, well, let's make an inquiry. And they find this guy named Ziba. Let's start with him. They called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. Verse 3. The king asked, is there still... Is there?" No one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's chesed, kindness, mercy, grace. Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. And he adds these words, He is crippled in both feet. Now, Swindoll would suggest that Ziba's being negative here. I, I, I don't read that into the text. I, I'm not sure I go along with that. Maybe he's right, I don't know. But it, he's suggesting that Ziba added that to say something like, yeah, there is one, but he's a cripple. He's not like the rest of us. He's not kingly. He, he's not suitable. You don't really want this guy around. I'm not sure if that's really what he's saying there. Maybe he's just adding some information. You asked about him, and let me tell you the whole story. But I love the king's response when he heard about his condition. He doesn't say, oh, really? Oh, that bad, huh? 
He, he's a cripple. Oh, well, well. No, he says, if there's somebody, if there's anybody, go get him. I've heard enough, Ziba, to put a plan into action. Would you get out there, find this guy, and get him for me? That's grace. That's grace, right? Verse 4. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Micar, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar, in the Hebrew, means barren place. It means no pasture land. It means wasteland. If you were hiding out and wanted to lay low and not be noticed by the king for fear he would kill you, you would be hanging out in low bar. That's exactly the kind of place you would hang out at. And that's where he made his life. Verse 5, So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Micar, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, imagine, can you imagine David's men riding up to Mephibosheth's house? You, you Mephibosheth? Yes, I am. Uh, David wants to see you. Uh-oh, what are you thinking? He wants me dead. Oh, he's found me. I mean, what's he going to do? Run away? <laughs> Not going to happen, right? And so the king's requested your presence, and they bring him. He bowed down to pay him honor. Man, if you're about to die, or you think you're about to die, you're going to bow down before the one that's going to kill you, right? David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. And how do you think he replied? What does David say to him? Don't be afraid. Why did David say, don't be afraid? Because he was afraid. Have you ever said to someone, don't be afraid? What are you noticing about them? They're afraid. And you're trying to alleviate the fear by saying, don't be afraid. See, Mephibosheth wanted anonymity. He wanted to lay low. And now he's been found. David says, come on, don't be afraid. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness, and there's that word again, grace, mercy, for the sake of your father Jonathan. And maybe he went into more detail than all this. You don't know this, Mephibosheth. You were just a five-year-old boy. You probably saw me around the, the kingdom, the, hanging with your dad. Your dad and I were like that. Your dad and I were tight. Your dad and I were best friends. I loved your dad. And now I love you. You can just see the story. We don't get the whole thing. I mean, the Bible's thick enough as it is. And so when we get to heaven, we'll get the whole rest of the context and all the rest of the story. But, and, and you could just see the surprise. He's never met the man. And he's just been told, you won the lottery. You're going to live in my house. You're going to eat at my table. You're going to eat my food. I'm taking care of you, man. It's too hard to believe. You ever had good news right in your face and it was overwhelming, you couldn't take it, and you said you just didn't believe it? I think he's in shock. I think that kind of thing is going on here. Verse 8, look at his response to winning the lottery. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? 
I'm just a dead dog living in Lodabar. Just leave me alone in my misery. Anybody remember saying that to God when God came pursuing you with His grace, His unmerited favor, His lavish gifts? This man was an absolute zero in personality and in appeal. But David stooped in grace and extended it to him. Verse 9, Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, said to him, I have given your master's grandson, that's Mephibosheth, everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Whatever Saul once owned, David took. And David says, hey, all of my accountants, here's what I want you to do. Figure out all the stuff I took from Saul and give it to this guy right here. I told you he won the lottery, didn't I? Give it to this guy. And Ziba, i got a job for you. You're going to take care of it. You're going to take care of that land. You're going to give all the proceeds to him. You and your sons, and I think he had 15 sons and 20 servants, are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Let's go, Ziba, make it happen. Man, you're watching all this, you're experiencing all this. Isn't that mind-blowing? Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. And so Mephibosheth, watch this again, look how many times he's made this statement. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the servants? No, like one of the king's sons. He is now family. I got a phone call this morning. From a family in New Mexico, Judy Pardon. She was crying. She said, Dad died yesterday. I said, Judy, I am so sorry. His name was Buck Pardon, Buck and Eva Pardon. We were a couple college kids. I did my internship in New Mexico. And this was the family that adopted us. You ever have a family kind of adopt you? You're, 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 you're away from home, you don't know anybody. They had a couple of boys, and we took them under our wing, and the family took us under their wing. We ate at their table regularly. I said, Dad's dead. 98 years old. This guy was with it, man, really to the end. We talked to him just a few months ago. He had called us. So we'd lost it. Eva had died probably 10 years earlier. And uh, out of the blue, he says, do you know who this is? Remember, Jane? And we both answered the phone at the same time. She's on one line, I'm on the other. I said, I sure do. This is Buck Pardon. We hadn't talked in years. I go, I'd recognize that voice anywhere. Judy said, Dad and Mom considered you guys like family. Can you come out this week and do the service? I said, when is it? She said, Tuesday. I said, I'm sorry, I got upward basketball on Tuesday night. I can't make that. Not really. I, I said, let me talk to my upward director. And my upward director said, Bruce, go. They said, we got tickets waiting for you. We, we'll get the car. We'll get, we got to fly into Lubbock. It's about 110 miles from there. We'll make it happen. I said, well, let me check with our chairman. Our chairman said, go. I remember what it was like to be treated like family. Mephibosheth 
an outsider, he thought, is now what? In the family. So close, so tight. He's in the family. Eating at the king's table. Just like the king's sons and like the king's daughters. And this is my all-time favorite story of grace in the Old Testament. People say, where's the grace in the Old Testament? Here's God's grace. Four separate times, David says, you'll eat at my table in verse 7, in verse 10, in verse 13, 11, and in verse 13. Let's read it one more time. Verse 13. Here's the last time we'll read this. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. That's where the kingdom, the castle was. Because he always ate at, how often? Always ate at the king's table. Did we not eat at the king's table this morning as we took communion as brothers and sisters in Christ? We eat at the king's table. We eat spiritual food. Food that is not to nourish us physically, but to nourish us spiritually. And he was crippled in both feet. Didn't deserve it. Didn't earn it. Couldn't pay for it. Neither could you or I. But God says, sons and daughters, come eat at my table. Come eat at my, your family now. I no longer call you servants, your friends and your family. We are the family of God, Paul says. Picture this scene. The dinner bell rings in the castle. Who sits at the head of the table? The king. David comes, takes his rightful place. And then just picture the whole family kind of coming in. Amnon, clever Amnon, crafty Amnon, kind of sits to the left of David. Next to him, you got Tamar, the charming, beautiful daughter. Solomon walks in from the study, right, reading a book. Absalom, you know anything about Absalom? He had beautiful, dark, flowing hair. Oh, long story, he gets hung up by his hair one day. Near him sits Joab, a courageous warrior. I'm sure Joab, captain of David's army, was often invited to the dinner table. And here's the whole family. Here's the point I'm trying to get to. And they're all ready to eat. And what do they have to do? They wait and they wait and they wait. Just imagine here. And all of a sudden, they hear the shuffling of whose feet? Mephibosheth. They hear the clump, clump, clump of Mephibosheth's clumsy crutches. And oh yeah, I'm here, I'm here. And he slides in. And he takes his place at the dinner table with the family, with the sons. with Why? Because he's now family. And can you picture that beautiful tablecloth covering his feet, covering his imperfections? And the blood of Christ, as we gathered around his table this morning, covers our feet. Any imperfections in us are covered. We talked about that in Bible class this morning, didn't we? I ask you, did Mephibosheth understand God's grace? Of course he did. And were he living today, Swindoll suggests that he would really identify with John Newton's song, especially this verse through many dangers toils and snares i have already come 
His grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Now quickly, a few analogies on the screen and our time will be gone. Mephibosheth had nothing, did nothing, and deserved nothing. How about us? We had nothing, did nothing, deserved nothing. He got the king's favor, but so did we. We got the king's favor. He just humbly, we just humbly accept his grace. Number two, David adopted Mephibosheth into the royal family, and we've been adopted. Adopted children get all the inheritance rights as if you were born into the family. And number three, Mephibosheth limped constantly. His limp constantly reminded him of the king's grace. See, every time you sin, don't let the devil discourage you with that. Just think of it, that's my handicap in this life. There's a day coming when sin shall be no more and time shall be no more. Thank you, God, for your grace. Our imperfect state reminds us. Where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. And then number four, when Mephibosheth sat at the king's table, he was treated as one of his own, no less than Solomon, no less than Absalom. Even when Absalom died, David's hugging him, holding on to him, saying, Absalom, Absalom, my poor Absalom. I wish it were me that were dead, not you. When we sit one day at Abraham, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we will sit as sons and daughters at the table of God. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Last, last screen. The cross of Christ. It is the center of God's grace. If you've never accepted it before, today is your day. Please accept it. Praise team, come on up as the rest of us go to God in prayer. Now, you may have been hiding from God. You, uh, like Mephibosheth, may have gone to a far place. Like the prodigal son, the father still wants you home. And it really doesn't matter how far away from God you have gone. In that prodigal son story, we know it's just one step back. But the father's looking, just as David was looking for Mephibosheth. And I don't care where you've been, uh, even in the wasteland of Lodabar, the father still wants you home. If you're a sinner, you qualify to eat at the king's table. Repent, trust, and put your Lord on in baptism. Come eat at this table of grace. We pray if there's anyone here today, Father, that needs to do that, they will accept your grace this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.